0: This is the sixth episode of my podcast on the life of Charles Haswell Campagnac, And in this episode, I'll deal with their life in India after they managed to flee Burma. As you may remember from the last episode, they arrived in Assam. And Charles says, we were driven in buses from the airfield to Dibrugarh." And accommodated in a cinema hall the british planters had scoured the district to obtain provisions for us what we most appreciated was that there were basins of cold water and soap and towels so that we could wash our faces before sitting down to eat a hot irish stew there were no beds in this hall and the planters actually brought us pillows and mattresses off their own beds we were indeed very grateful to these people who were perfect strangers to us and had gone to such trouble to welcome us to India. One of the first things I did after arriving in Calcutta was to write a letter to the Statesmen thanking them, as well as the volunteers of the National Indian Congress who supplied us with food and refreshments on our long journey. The following day, we were moved from the cinema hall to make room for other evacuees who are arriving almost every hour we moved to a Roman Catholic church where we slept for about three nights. We were then taken to a launch which carried us down the Brahmapatra River to Tezpur. The trip took three days and three nights and we had to sleep on deck, practically starve the whole time as there was no restaurant or eating shop on board. At Tezpur, we stayed in a duck bungalow, which is apparently a traveller's rest house, which had barbed wire all round the compound. We were not allowed to speak to any Indians for fear that it might scare those if a full account of the disaster which had overtaken Burma became known. From Tezpur, we were taken by train, which had no doors or windows, rather like a tram car, for about 15 miles before we caught the mainline train to Calcutta. This involved a train journey of about two days and two nights. We were herded like animals into third-class compartments, which only had wooden seats, and it was a real ordeal to push one's way through to the crowd to get to the lavatory. Some people had bought with them Burmese wooden sandals, and these were lent to anyone wanting to visit the lavatory. The only person able to wash on the way was my son Charles, used to climb out of the window when we stopped at a station and bathe under a pump on the platform. They then ended up in Calcutta, which they found rather unpleasant. Apparently, there was no water available, and so it was very difficult for them to keep clean. And in fact, Charles says, I took my son Charles to an Indian barber's and we had our hair cut and our head shampooed. I felt very ashamed when I saw the water coming off my head, as black as ink, and I explained to the barber that we were Burma refugees. I asked him if there's anywhere in Calcutta where we could have a bath. He told me that there were barbers in the Mohammedan quarter where, for four anna, you could get hot water in a small tub, which you would have to throw over yourself with a mug. I asked the Indian barber to direct a rickshaw man to this place, which he kindly did. But before proceeding there, Charles and I went to the new market and bought clean shirts and shorts and gym shoes, as by this time all our clothing was in rags and black as soot. So they got out of there as quickly as possible and got asked to be moved to Bangalore. Charles says, at Bangalore, we are fortunate in being able to rent a small house at a very low rent. We found that there were many shops in Bangalore which hired out furniture, and we were able to make ourselves fairly comfortable. Everything in Bangalore was rationed, and the rationed food was of very poor quality, especially the rice, which is the staple food of people in the East. In Bangalore, we formed the Burma Refugee Association, of which Sir William Carr, an ex-judge of the Burma High Court, was the president, and I was the vice-president. The association collected a considerable sum of money from evacuees all over India. And with this money, garments from both English and Burmese dress were made by the Burma evacuee women and sent to Red Cross for their distribution among people in Burma who'd been left behind. I tried to get employment in India in one of the evacuee camps, but without success. I was asked by the collector of Bangalore if I would consent to being appointed chairman of a bench of magistrates. And he said that I'd be helping a great deal in this way as there was a shortage of magistrates on account of the war. This was purely an honorary post and all I received was a traveling allowance. I was given first class powers and a number of cases which were in arrears in the stipendary magistrates court were sent to me for trial. On the bench with me was a Mohammedan, a Hindu and an Indian Christian lady. I, I guess this shows the uh, the date this has been written in, in so far as calling a, a Muslim a Mohammedan and a Hindu is H-I-N-D-O-O. Anyway, Charles continues. The Mohammedan and Hindu were wealthy contractors and only sought the appointments to enhance their prestige. They often asked to be excused from attending court. I told them I couldn't mark them present unless they came to court and signed the register, but that if they wanted to leave early, they could do so, providing they sent a lunch for me and my lady colleague and also transport to take us home. This they willingly agreed to do. My lady colleague was a Mrs. David who had a BA degree. I found her very useful and she used to record the depositions at my dictation. I was rather glad that my other two colleagues did not sit regularly because they were prejudiced against an accused who who was a Hindu or an accused who happened to be a Mohammedan, as the case may be. The Hindu colleague would whisper in my ear when there was a Mohammedan accused before the court. These Mohammedans are very bad fellows and we must fine them heavily. The Mohammedan would do the same when a Hindu came before the court. I was also given special powers to read the riot act, but I'm glad that an occasion never arose when I had to do so. The Bangalore Bar treated me with great courtesy and consideration. And when I resigned at the end of the war, they openly expressed in court their appreciation of my work as a magistrate. The Indian subordinate police in Bangalore were as corrupt as most police were throughout India and Burma. Every day, the police used to send up to the court cases in which young men and women were charged with riding bicycles at night without a light or with failing to stop at a halt sign. These unfortunate people were taken to the police station and either had to leave their bicycles at the police station and walk home or hand over 10 rupees to the guard rider. I came to learn of this practice when some of the accused said that they had no money to pay the fines inflicted by the court but they had deposited 10 rupees at the police station. I passed an order, copies of which I sent to the collector and to the commissioner of police, directing that when any money had been deposited by an accused person in the police station, that the policeman in charge of the case must bring the money to the court on the day of the hearing. In one instance, this order was disobeyed and I threatened to send the policeman concerned to prison for contempt of court. Charles goes on to explain that Bangalore was a cantonment town and had a resident. It was very well laid out and its suburbs were named after previous residents, e.g. Cookstown, Richestown, Frasertown. It was in Bangalore that Sir Winston Churchill was stationed when he was a sub-lieutenant. The barracks in which he resided was still standing when we were in Bangalore when we met an old Indian who proudly told us that he'd been Sir Winston's Batman. During the war, many thousands of soldiers of all nationalities, American, African, English and Indian, crowded the streets. A number of Chinese restaurants sprang up all over the town, the proprietors of which were Chinese evacuees from Singapore. One of the largest of these restaurants was named the Winston Churchill Restaurant. Charles goes on to say, Before the war, Bangalore used to be called the pensioner's paradise. A number of army men and civilians had settled there. They'd built their own houses and the cost of living was so cheap that a man with a pension of about 25 to 30 pounds a month could live in comparative luxury. He could afford to have two or three servants and have a car with which he used to drive to the Bowring Institute a very large club which had been given to the domiciled European and Anglo-Indian community by Lord Bowering. These pensioners were very hard hit by the war. Domestic servants were no longer obtainable as they had found employment in factories and earned wages about 50 times higher than what they'd previously received. The cost of living went up by over 500% And, of course, petrol was rationed and could only be obtained at black market prices. One collector of Bangalore remarked that he thought it must be the most inhospitable place in the world. He said on every gate he saw large notices, beware of the dogs. I don't know whether these people had been inhospitable during pre-war years, but I do not remember being offered a cup of tea or given anything to eat when I called upon some of them. They were very different from the people of Burma. In Burma, you were not allowed to leave a house until you'd had some refreshment. And if you went at mealtimes, you were asked to sit down and take pot luck. While in Bangalore, the government of Burma was an exile at Simla. And I was invited to go to Simla and take part in an Anglo-Burman conference to consider what the future of the community was like to be when Burma was reoccupied by the British. So I'll finish this episode here, and in the next episode, I'll deal with what it was like in Burma after the reoccupation. Thank you for listening.